There's this notion that if you're passionate about something, you should drop what you're doing and like pursue like your heart's desire. And what the research shows is actually the complete opposite, that the best way to cultivate a passion is to do so very incrementally and gradually over time. And the reason that this works is because you can take more risks when you have the safe thing supporting you, which is a very different narrative. I mean, I didn't hear that narrative growing up. I heard either take the safe path, or if you take the safe path, you're going to be bored all your life, follow your passion, you know, don't worry about it, have no regrets. And those two things don't have to be in opposition to each other. And I think one other nuanced thing that Brad pointed out there is a lot of times we hear, find your passion. And that implies that there is something out there that you're going to be passionate about. But I think what we found and what we're trying to get out is it's not like a, a soulmate where there's one passion out there that you can find. So what we really suggest is look at different things you're interested in and try them out. And if they have that fuel to become a passion, like you'll become aware of it and you'll cultivate it. That's Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Follow your passion. Follow your passion. Just do it. Find your bliss. Go for it. It can be such a trite thing to say. And if you're into self-help, which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, it's almost like this trope on the internet. And I'll freely admit that following your passion is a subject that comes up pretty frequently on this podcast, something that I... Uh, have often advocated people to pursue, but let's pause for a minute and consider whether or not this is always the right thing to do for everybody in every scenario. And it turns out that the answer is actually complicated. Passion indeed, it can be a gift, following it can be amazing, and it certainly goes hand in hand with high performance, but I think if we're being really honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge that there is also a downside to following your passion. If you don't know how to properly channel that passion, it can be a curse. It can lead to angst, uh, depression. It can lead to suffering and in frequent cases to burnout. So I think it's fair to call it a paradox. My name is Rich Roll. I am your host on this podcast. And today, my friends Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus return to the podcast. Their first appearance was RRP 293 back in June of 2017 to explore this paradox, the pros and the cons of pursuing your passion and how to develop the right kind of passion and, and what exactly comprises a life of meaning, of purpose, of fulfillment and, and ultimately happiness. Longtime listeners might recall that Steve is a former elite track and field athlete. He's a 401 miler, uh, turned elite track and cross country coach to some of the most accomplished pro and Olympic runners on the planet. Brad, on the other hand, is a former McKinsey consultant turned writer. Uh, he specializes in health and human performance and is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Outside Magazine, New York Magazine, Forbes, NPR, 
the Los Angeles Times, and Runner's World. And together, they co-authored Peak Performance, which is this amazing science-based primer on the principles that drive and sustain high performance in sport, business, and life. And their latest collaboration, which just hit bookstores everywhere today and is the focus of today's conversation, is entitled, as you might have guessed, The Passion Paradox. And it's this fascinating look into the science behind passion and its double-edged sword nature. Uh, It's a definite must read for anyone searching for that spark or how to best harness it. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. 
Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. Okay, so Brad, Steve. All right, look. The common advice is to find and follow your passion. You hear it all the time, especially on self-help-oriented content, books, podcasts. I'm guilty of it because I believe in passion. Personally, I think we need more of it. There are so many people locked in unfulfilling careers who just, I feel, need permission to fold more passion into their lives. A life fueled with more passion can lead to a better life. But Brad and Steve make some very good points because passion isn't that simple. Because passion and balance, another virtue that's touted by our culture, are essentially incompatible. And so what happens is that the drive that fuels these amazing breakthroughs, whether they're athletic, scientific, entrepreneurial, or artistic, can be every bit as destructive as it is productive. And so the point of this conversation and the subject of their new book is, is to demystify this, to demystify passion, to explore and show how you can find and cultivate your passion, but do it in a sustainable way, to sustainably harness its power through cultivating greater self-awareness and in so doing avoid its dangers. Quick final note, if you're looking to dial in your nutrition and need some expert guidance right now, we've got a special limited time offer on our Plant Power Meal Planner. $20 off an annual membership when you sign up at meals.richroll.com and use the code POWER20, POWER20 at checkout. 
You'll get thousands of customized plant-based recipes, unlimited grocery lists, grocery delivery in many metropolitan areas, and access to professional nutrition coaches seven days a week. And you get all of that for basically $1.50 a week, a cup of coffee, people. It's an amazing product. We're super proud of it, and we're super excited about this special offer. So check it out, meals.richroll.com, code POWER20 for $20 off through April 13th. Okay, I love these guys. I'm so glad to have them back on the podcast. So let's do this thing. This is me, Steve Magnus, and Brad Stolberg. Great to have you back on the show. Uh, welcome to the studio. I fondly recall last time doing this uh, cramped in a tiny hotel room <laughs> down in like Marina Del Rey near the airport. So I uh, appreciate you coming up here to do it again. No, thanks for having us. This yeah. is a lot nicer. Yeah, it's a little bit more comfortable, hopefully. Um, and super excited about your book. Congratulations. Fantastic. Uh, it's a great read. I found it to be super enlightening and instructive and helpful uh, and look forward to deconstructing it with you guys here today. Let's do it. Yeah, man. So first of all, it feels like you just wrote a book five minutes ago and now you have another book coming out. So what is that about? Before we even get into what the book is, like you it's sound crazy. Like our, you sound you like, like our agent, yeah. it's not good. <laughs> yeah, um, so the, the the short answer is that we really like to write and we, we are into Shame these ideas. Uh, the, the longer answer is the, the first book that we wrote, Peak Performance, had a pretty long runway from when we submitted the manuscript to when it was published. Mm -hmm. And we had planned to spend this time together uh, to refine the manuscript. And it turned out that, that that manuscript didn't need as much refining as we thought. So we had weeks on our hands in person. Steve lives in Houston, I'm in Northern California. Mm -hmm. And we just started writing another book. Um, so this book was more or less done before peak performance came oh, out. Oh, wow, that's crazy. That's amazing. So your process in terms of writing, I mean, how much time do you actually spend in person? Because you have lives on separate coasts, basically. Yeah, yeah not a lot, actually. Not yeah. a lot. So we probably, for this book, probably only spent maybe three long weekends together or something like that. Right. So three or four. Three long weekends in a week, though, when we really yeah. came up with the idea. And, and that's where it, like our process, that's where the kind of magic happens is like the idea generation phase. Right. That's where we need to be together, where we're just throwing ideas back and forth and like kind of coming up with the outline of like, hey, what does this look like? Once it comes to the writing process, like we just have this refined, you know, process where, you know, Brad takes a little bit, I take a little bit, we share it back and forth and right. it, it's just super in, in sync. So do you have another book that you've basically completed that will be coming out nine months from now? Our agent might, <laughs> might kill us at this Right, point. right. No, we're no. going to plead the fifth. <laughs> right. And we should say, because there's a lot of new listeners since the last time you guys were on, Steve, elite track and field running coach, lives in Houston. Brad lives in Oakland, uh, writer, journalist with a background uh, in consulting and a whole story that we went into in detail the last time you guys were here. But it is a yin and a yang thing. Like Steve brings this kind of firsthand athlete, coach, um, science perspective, and Brad brings kind of the journalistic uh, approach to these, these ideas that you're exploring. Um, and it seems like a nice synergistic way to kind of 
broach these topics. Yeah, it's it's worked out well. I mean, it, it's worked out well if first and foremost we judge by the fact that it, this has been super fun and we get right. paid to do stuff that we love and we like working together. So, yeah, it's cool. We're fortunate. All right, so passion, the passion, the the passion paradox, right? I think uh, this is very much of the moment. We're in a culture where we talk a lot about chasing our passion, finding our bliss, living our bliss, living our most authentic selves, our best selves. And there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown in there from motivation to inspiration to uh, obsession and passion, of course, is sort of a catchphrase for all of that. But I'm not sure we really understand our terminology. So maybe the best place to begin this is to define all of our terms. Yeah, let's do it. What does passion mean, essentially, (laughs) is what I'm asking. Like, how do you think about passion? It depends. Um, (laughs) So that that, that was more or less the starting point for this Mm -hmm. book, was asking that question. Like, what does it mean to be passionate? And the word passion itself comes from the the Latin root passio, and the definition of passio is to suffer. Mm. So passion first and foremost meant suffering. Uh, The word was created in a religious connotation with the crucifixion of Jesus, and it was the suffering of Christ on the cross was Basio. The passion of the Christ. Exactly. Exactly. And then over time, the word slowly morphed to this broader sense of desire, but it was still tied up in suffering for about the first 1,400 years of its usage. Mm. Only more recently was passion something that one would want to strive for or that would be linked to a good life. It's a weird twist. Like what what caused that change in the way that we perceive that word? Do there, do we know or Yeah, I'm not sure exactly we know. We actually talked to a couple experts who are experts at etymology and word uh linguistics and it seemed like actually around like Shakespeare it starts to begin this change because mm-hmm. he used it in the context of like love which was the first kind of what I'd call positive somewhat usage of it. But even there, it had this like negative connotation towards it. And it wasn't until like the turn of the 20th century where you start seeing it in in the modern usage of it. Like, hey, you need to find your passion or passion is something that is good, that is something that we should search for. And it really wasn't until you know, probably 1960s, 1970s, where we see this whole kind of cultural change of like, find your passion. Yeah, it's so interesting. But I think there's something to that that Shakespearean perspective because it it, may, it seems to make sense that 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 kind of pain element can be built into this idea of what it means to feel strongly, right? Because because pain and suffering are really not a very distant cousin to these strong emotions around love and how we think about passion today, right? They're they're just a shred, they're just a little tweak to one side. Yeah, they're they're exactly that. They're close cousins, maybe even brother and sister, two sides of the same coin. Uh-huh. Um, that was really interesting too in the the research of the book learning not just about how the word is used and how we perceive people following their passion or people suffering, but also the neurology of someone that is very passionate versus somebody that is an addict or suffering from mental illness or some dysfunction. What's happening in the brain 
is very similar, if not the same. Well, I'm, I have personal interest in that. So <laughs> let's explore that. Like, what is the difference? Because again, those are two things that are very close to each other. Like, and I've asked myself this question, like, am I just passionate about doing this or do I have an unhealthy mm-hmm. um, sort of obsessive relationship with this pursuit? And I'm telling myself that I'm passionate about it. And sometimes it's not clear. Yeah, I mean, and and that's where actually the origins of this whole thing started or the whole Mm -hmm. our exploration of it is we'd seen in ourselves some of these like obsessive tendencies. I mean, we were writing a book before our first book came out. Yeah. Right. We have these obsessive tendencies and we were sitting there just talking about like, hey, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing or is this something we should pull back on or push forward on? And that's kind of where we had this debate of like, hey, wait a minute, is passion good, bad? What is it? How does obsession tie into it? Uh And those were at the root of of what we were exploring. And if you look at, you know, some of the biology of it, right? We looked at the biology of addiction and of desire and hormonally and then neurologically. So both on a hormone level and on a brain level, like, they're very, very closely related. Uh-huh. It's it's almost impossible to sit there and be like, oh no, this person's like, their brain shows they're they're actually in love versus addicted, right? Mm. The, the, the only thing that I would add to that, and maybe this gets back to your original question, is I would say that passion isn't good or bad. It just is, mm-hmm. and it can very much be both of those things. Uh, it can be both of those things for the same person over the course of their life, Sometimes it can be both of those things on the same day. Both of those things being what? What being are the good two or things? Being good, being or, good bad. or bad? A blessing yeah, or I mean, a curse. we can we can we can place a value judgment on it. I mean, it just is, right? right. Exactly. So whether it's bad or good, maybe we don't know in the immediate moment, and we only know in retrospect years later. Um, but I think a good litmus test is the impact that it's having on other areas of your life. Like if it's setting in motion a domino effect of damage and you know, <laughs> like like scorched earth relationships and you know failing to live up to other responsibilities, then we could probably qualify it as obsessive or addictive and thus negative as opposed to a sustainable passion, you know, flame that's burning in a healthy way, which is kind of what, you know, you discuss in the later chapters of the book. Totally. And I think that you you just nailed the distinction, right? So the definition or a, a, a working definition of addiction, at least one that I use, is the relentless pursuit of something despite negative consequences. Mm-hmm. You could say that passion is the relentless pursuit of something with positive consequences, yeah, or or at least with neutral consequences, <laughs> yeah, or despite the the it, 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 pursuing it despite the lack of like public acknowledgement, like you would do it anyway, whether you're making money at it or whether you're being sort of uh, lauded for it. If you're passionate enough about it, it should propel you nonetheless. Exactly, hundred yeah. percent. And if you look at like some of the research that's been done around this. They actually like distinguish it between what they call a harmonious passion and obsessive passion. Uh-huh. And how you distinguish that is exactly that. Right. Is it something that you're doing because you enjoy the activity that you would do regardless? Or is it something that's being driven by some like external pursuit or some sort of fear that you wouldn't you wouldn't actually do that activity if it was just up to you. Right. So all you have to do for the sort of most extreme example of the negative 
in what you just described, just look to any villain in a Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're basically yeah, totally. You know, the 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 ultimate manifestation of obsessive passion gone awry, right? Yeah. And perhaps that started with a laudable idea, but it became perverted and just the continuous doubling down on it until it becomes you know this dark. Yeah, you know, and I think force it's, of it, nature. It's it's <laughs> it, when you say it that extreme, uh, it's a little bit more black and white. Uh, you know, what fascinates us is that I think that a lot of people start out with harmonious passion; they love the thing itself, but then they start to see some good results. Mm-hmm. And our human species evolved to want to see good results, um, social standing, rewards. Like that's a big part of evolution. So it's this slippery slope to starting off doing an activity because you love it. But then without perhaps even noticing, doing the activity, not because you love the thing, but you love the external validation and the recognition that the thing brings you. And that can become dangerous. Now, the flip side is also true that very few people just do the thing because they love the thing. Like we're not Mm -hmm. robots. It feels good to be recognized. But at what point are you chasing the recognition more than the activity itself? And that's where lots of people both in regular life as well as world-class performers really struggle. Well, also with success, success begets obligation, right? Because then what you're doing becomes institutionalized. So all you have to do is look at, you know, whether it's Tiger Woods or Michael Phelps, like any super successful athlete, mm-hmm. it starts with passion as a kid in a healthy way, doing this thing that you love. And then the, the success turns this into, you know, essentially an industry in which, there's a lot of people relying upon the perpetuation of that success. The love for the thing itself begins to wane and it becomes about money and career and legacy. And then, you know, then the crisis happens that either breaks that person or helps to rebuild them and allows them to come back stronger. Totally. Right? I mean, that's kind of like, you see this getting, that archetype getting played out and played yeah. out and played out. And you know, in my personal experience with this podcast, like <laughs> yeah. this began as like a tiny <laughs> little thing and now it's like a thing, right? <laughs> it's not like the biggest thing in the world, but like- It's a thing. There's yeah. people that help me and they're here and, <laughs> and you guys are here. And we're stoked here. to be here. There's lights, we're <laughs> filming this. Like this is not how it started. And you don't think we feel the and, same way on the other side of the mic, right? <laughs> yeah, like, like we're two young guys that uh-huh. wrote a book because we like writing and suddenly people are buying our book and you want to have us and talk and to what you. what does that mean? And, and what does it mean? Like we know what we're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and now you have an agent and your agent yep. says, well, what's the next book? You know, and yeah. then um, and then it's it, the, the nature of the thing itself inevitably changes, right? And what does that say about passion or what passion means or the quality of passion that is underlying everything that you're doing and why you're doing it? Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing that it's really important or interesting is it's also your relationship to that activity, like your identity being tied to it as you have success. Mm -hmm. Like we found, you know, talking to a bunch of different people, it's it's that moment where you go from, oh, I really enjoy this. I'm really passionate. Then it almost transforms to like, this is who I am. You Uh know, I'm Steve the runner because I was good at running. Right. Or, you know, you're Rich Roll, the podcast guy, because this has blown up and it's, People know you by that, but then you yourself started identifying yourself only in this regard. Yeah. And I think what we found is that that kind of spirals this passion thing towards a negative, almost obsessive connotation because then it becomes like, oh, if, you know, Brad and I are known as writers and we write this poor book, 
Now it's just not like, oh, we, we failed at writing. We're not good at writing. It's no, Brad and I failed. Right. Right. So it's like that. You time. are failures. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, once you become associated with a certain thing and you're successful in that regard, then your identity becomes calcified around it. And then you feel this pressure to live up to it. So if this book is super successful, maybe you have the ability to say, well, I'm never going to write another book again. I don't feel like it or whatever. But then you would inevitably find yourself butting up against that sense of dis of sort of um, uh, dissonance with this identity that you work so hard to create, right? It's yeah, a weird thing. I think so. I, I'd like to think that if it got to that point and the reason that it's like, nope, never writing another book is because didn't want to write. I'd like to think I'd have the guts. We'd have the guts to do it. Uh-huh. I think that we still like to write, but that other stuff is still there. So in the book, um, there's, this, there's this section on harmonious and obsessive passion and how the two can take different forms at different times of someone's life. And personally, I just shoot for 51% of my passion to be harmonious. And as long as the majority is coming from, I like the act itself, then I'm fine getting excited by other things. Because when I was researching this book and writing it with Steve, I got into this phase where I started like just getting stuck in my head and like judging myself. Am I just doing this because I want to sell books? Am I just doing this because I want people to take me seriously? Or do I actually like writing? And Steve's been real helpful at this. It just the two can coexist. So long as the fuel for the activity is the predominant one, mm. you should be in a pretty healthy relationship with the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh... So how do you gauge that 51%? Like, how do you know that you're, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like for me, I, I, you have to be really honest with yourself, but then sometimes I don't even trust my own barometer. Like I may say, well, I'm doing this because I love it, but then like what part of my psyche am I shrouding and not really being completely open with? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 100%. I mean, and I think that's why, you know, Brad mentioned the conversations we have, but we talk about this all the time. Uh-huh. And I think that's part of the outlet is talking to somebody from the outside who knows you really well, but can see those like changes in your behaviors and changes of like your attitude towards doing things. Right. And like that's where it's been really helpful in not only our, our writing relationship, but our friendship of friendship of like calling, calling each, each other out. Each other out. Yeah. It's important, right? Yeah. Um, well, I think the central, sort of the central question that you're asking in this book, and, and I would imagine was a motivating factor in, in bringing expression to these ideas, is we're in this cultural moment right now, as I kind of alluded to at the beginning, where we're encouraged to, there's a, there's a kind of war of ideas where on the one hand, it's like, follow your passion. You know, you only live once, you know, life is short, you're a millennial, go travel the world, who cares? And then the responsible voice on the other shoulder saying, passion is overrated. Like we're in a, we're in a culture of hot takes, right? So what's the hot take? Well, like the hot take now is to say like passion is bullshit, right? 
uh, you, you know, don't listen to your passion. Maybe you shouldn't follow your passion. You should follow through on the thing that you're good at or the thing that could perhaps provide you with, uh, you know, a solid um, career path for the next 20 or 30 years. And reconciling these two ideas, um, kind of bashing them up against each other seems to be the tension or the friction that's kind of birthed the ideas that come through on the book. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's, that's the title, right? The Passion Paradox. Uh, people want black or white. Mm -hmm. They don't like it depends. It depends yeah. is not such a great answer, yeah. but with passion, like the, I think Steve thinks the answer really is it depends. And that's why we wrote the book is to, to figure out, well, it depends on what, like, what is a good passion? What is a bad passion? Um, it can absolutely be reckless to pursue something that you have no business pursuing financially for your relationships, but it can also be reckless to stay in the same old rut that you've been in. Um, and in the book, we try to yeah. tease out, well, well, how do you work with these questions in a way that feels right for you? And that also is setting you up to, to have a healthy relationship with the thing. Yeah. In other words, this subtitle for this book could be like, how to follow your passion in a very respectful, responsible way that your parents would approve of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. But I'm kidding. You know, I think but it is like responsible being being a responsible, passionate person. Got yeah, it. you know and, what I mean. And stuff comes like, out. So 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 one one clear example of I guess maybe is like responsible, passionate person. So there's this notion that if you're passionate about something, you should drop what you're doing and like pursue like your heart's desire. Um, there have been books written about this. Like you should follow your must. Mm -hmm. And what the research shows is actually the complete opposite. That the best way to cultivate a passion is to do so very incrementally and gradually over time. So if one's passion was becoming a, a professional podcaster, the, the answer is not to quit your job and start podcasting. It's to start podcasting as a hobby. I can assure and, you that that is a bad idea. And, and, you and you gradually work up to a spot where then maybe you gain the confidence based on evidence that you can go all in. And the reason that this works is because you can take more risks mm -hmm. when you have the safe thing supporting you, uh, which is a very different narrative. I mean, I didn't hear that narrative growing up. I heard either take the safe path, or if you take the safe path, you're going to be bored all your life, follow your passion, you know, don't worry about it, have no regrets. And those two things don't have to be in opposition to each other. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a binary thing. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and I think one other thing, one other nuanced thing that Brad pointed out there is a lot of times we hear find your passion. And that implies that there is something out there that you're going to be passionate about. But I think what we found and what we're trying to get out is it's not about finding it, it's about cultivating it, right? It's not that, hey, the moment I start writing, like I'm gonna be deeply in love with writing. You know, if you asked me 10 years ago if I was gonna write a book, like I'd been like, nope, no way. Like I hate writing, don't wanna do it in school, anything like that. But now I love it, enjoy it. And part of that was like a process of like writing blogs and articles and like coming to enjoy that. And what the research clearly shows is it's not like a, a soulmate where there's one passion out there that you can find. It's that you can, can cultivate this in different things that you're interested in. So what we really suggest is almost become like serial dabblers uh -huh. and like look at different things you're interested in and try them out. And if they have that fuel to become a passion, like you'll be you'll become aware of it and you'll cultivate it. I like that. I think that's really important too because it's one thing to say, to have this discussion, should you follow your passion or not? 
passion being something that didn't even exist in the lexicon a couple of hundred years ago, yep. right? But I think the more common thing is that people don't even know what their passion is. It's like, oh, how convenient you have a passion. You're trying to figure out whether you should pursue it. Like, I don't even know, like I've just been doing my, I'm at my job and what, you know, like I, I'm so disconnected that I don't even know what I would do if I could do it. And that I think goes to the heart of, of what ails so many people. And so the idea that like relieving the pressure valve, like don't feel bad if you don't have a passion. Right. Actually, most people don't. <laughs> no, like and Steve, try yeah. stuff that you think is cool yeah. and like don't judge yourself over it. And that. I gotta give credit to Steve. Steve is so good about this. Passion is such a charged word that like you said, you feel bad, oh, I don't right. have a passion. But just follow. Your- you have this idea that people are just <laughs> jumping out of bed in the morning, like right. lit up, and just can't wait to get to work or whatever. But it's more about you interest. Know? Like the 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 seed for mm. passion is interest, and everyone has interests, and it's about following your interests. And I can almost assure you that if you have an interest, and your first thought is how can I monetize this, you probably will not monetize it. But if your first thought is I really love doing this thing, I'm going to spend more time doing it, and I'm going to invest in my own growth doing this this thing whether it's writing, running, owning a business, in a relationship, you name it, then over time, it will become very clear if that's something that makes mm-hmm. sense for you to monetize and give more of your time to. Yeah, I mean, what I always say is, is think about the things that you enjoyed most as a young person that kind of fell by the wayside as you got older. And some of those are silly, but some of those are very primal and may still be relevant. And it's not about, monetization or quitting your job or uh, you know monopolizing your time but if you can recapture one of those interests and breathe a little life into it as an adult and just fan that flame and do it simply because you enjoy doing it um, that's the win in and of itself and should that lead you on a you know path that tweaks your trajectory going forward professionally, then that's gravy, but it's not necessarily about that. Yeah, it's, a, it's you nailed it. It's a two-phase process. So there's that, which is doing it, not, not thinking about success. And that you're most likely, like I said, to have success. Success, monetization, that should all be a byproduct. That shouldn't mm-hmm. be the end goal. So that's the first part of the book is outlining, well, how do you do that? What's the process for cultivating your passion uh, how do you know when to pull back? How do you know when to push forward? Then the second part is, oh, wow, like I've got some success. Then it's everyone just says, well, follow your passion. Well, then it's that slippery slope to craving and need more success and need more followers and more money and more recognition. So then once you have the success, well, then how do you nurture and nourish your passion so it stays harmonious? Mm-hmm. So like the way that society looks at this is ass backwards, right? It's find your passion, doesn't work like that. And then it's like, oh, when you have passion, just like follow it with reckless abandon, you're crushing. Like, nope, that's a slippery slope to, to craving and suffering and anxiety and depression and burnout and all sorts of bad things. Right, and that's something you experienced in your personal life, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's I don't know how much of it would necessarily be related to the passion itself. Um, but I, I'll step back for a second. So I'm in recovery for obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. um, which is a really misunderstood thing. I always thought growing up obsessive compulsive disorder was like someone that needed to be super clean or super organized. You're just washing your hands. Right. Constantly. And Steve, who's yeah. spent time at my family's house and with me can tell you like, I'm neither <laughs> super clean nor super organized. Um, but obsessive compulsive disorder is actually characterized by any kind of recurring intrusive thought 
that is accompanied by a devastating feeling. And these thoughts can hit you 10,000 times a day, just mm -hmm. nonstop. And then the compulsion is anything to make that thought go away. So in the hand-washing example, someone might constantly be thinking that they're dirty, they're going to get sick. And how do you make that go away? You wash your hands. And then the thought comes back and you wash your hands again. Uh, that's only one type of OCD. The, the type that I suffered from and occasionally still do is related to self-harm. So I have these awful thoughts that I should harm myself. And it's one thing to have a crazy thought, but they're accompanied by urges and feelings to really do it. Mm. And my compulsion was then reassuring myself. So in my mind, trying to problem solve and be like, oh, well, I would never do that. I have no reason to be feeling this way. I should be happy. Uh, but the circuits in the brain just go totally haywire and you get caught in this vicious cycle. Um, and that hit me about two months after peak performance came out. Yeah. I don't think that it had any relation to the fact that the book was successful. I do think that I'm a very dopamine-driven person. I'm very excitable. Good conversation um, excites me. Doing well excites me. Writing excites like I, I, I exist in excitement. And excitement is fueled by this neurochemical dopamine. And a lot of research on OCD shows that OCD is just like the dopamine circuits going totally haywire. Mm -hmm. So my psychiatrist can't say, like, I can't say, no one will really know. Maybe I was predisposed and this would have happened regardless. But a story that I tell myself is that when that book came out, there was so much dopamine going on because I was just excited. I was having conversations like this. Things were great that eventually the brain just short-circuited it. And it was like from that to just the worst experience in my life. Mm. Yeah, you described it as, it's called pure O? Yeah, pure like, O. What does that mean? So it, pure O is a way that clinicians and patients, people that suffer, can categorize it from other OCD. So the pure O stands for pure obsessional. Uh -huh. So I didn't have any visible compulsions. I see. It wasn't like I was walking my yeah. hands. My compulsion was, again, trying to problem solve or reassure myself. And there's nothing like a book release to uh, set in motion, uh, you know, a, a cascade of dopamine activating <laughs> activities right. like refreshing your Amazon <laughs> ranking and all that kind of craziness that goes along with it. So it's not a surprise that that was sort of uh, yeah. The, the one thing I will that. say in case in case there are listeners um, that are either confused or maybe suffering themselves is that I always thought that OCD or anxiety was just like what I used to experience as anxiety at like a, a hundred degrees. Uh -huh. It's a totally different animal. Like there was no slippery slope from like excitement of the book. I can't stop thinking to OCD. It was like, I mean, it's terrifying. It felt like my brain was just completely taken over. There was a week when I thought maybe I developed schizophrenia. I mean, it, it was literally losing your mind wow. and having just enough insight to know that you lost your mind. Um, fucking terrifying. So thankful that I have health insurance and that I was able to get help and I have a supportive family. Um, and now I'm here having this conversation about it. Like it's this crazy thing. But when I was in it, I didn't know what was going to happen. It was really yeah. scary. Yeah. The irony of being the guy who, who co-wrote the, the peak <laughs> performance book, you know, about like how you mentally approach yeah. uh, performing at your best to then have this, you know, succumb to this kind of episode uh, but then I don't know how much time passed after the acute phase of it, but you decide to share this and you write about this for outside. Yeah. That, so that happened about August that came out in March, I think. So about 
eight months after the onset. Eight months after. Uh-huh. And and what precipitated that um was actually a singular event. I was in Virginia with my brother on what was supposed to be a fun vacation to run the uh the Virginia, like the Charlottesville half marathon, or not Charlottesville, excuse me, the Richmond half marathon. And I was just having a miserable time of with OCD that weekend. And I was supposed to be there with my brother having a good time. And like all I could think about was driving the car off the road. And it just fucking sucks. And I remember being at a coffee shop and pulling up my email. And I had like four emails from 20 to 30-year-old guys that are in the spirit of, you're only 31. You wrote this kick-ass book. You've got it all figured out. How do you do it? And I'm sitting there with that stuff going on in my mind and it like it just broke me. Mm. And the cognitive dissonance and the distress that that caused was almost as bad as the OCD itself. And at that moment, I'm like, I just can't live like this. So I either need to stop writing because I'm a total imposter, I'm a fraud, or I need to come out and own this. And, and the things that I write about are pretty personal always. So there was no, like there was no if, ands, or but. And, and for a while, I'm like, maybe I just won't write. Like, maybe this isn't for me. And again, thank goodness a supportive therapist is like, no, like, that's the worst thing you could do. That's giving into the OCD. Like, fucking own it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I decided to write about it. Um, you know, not it, it had the byproduct of helping a lot of people. But if I'm being totally honest, did I want to help other people? Sure. But when I wrote that, it was really more for myself to just eliminate that total feeling of being a fraud. Yeah, the dissonance and the catharsis with that. But it had to be hard to hit publish on that. But I would imagine that's gotta be, of everything you've written, I mean, that seemed to really connect with people in a in a profound and also a viral way. Yeah, and you know, that's like the unintended byproduct thing. That story blew up and people were offering me book deals about that issue. And I'm like, whoa, like let, let's all pause. Like yeah. I, I'm no person to be an expert. I just shared my experience. I think it goes to show that um, there are a lot of people, especially in, in the industry that I'm in, that Steve's in, that you're in, this like self-help genre that just act like they have all their stuff together few people probably do if anyone i mean that's why we connected right you've been so authentic and and i'll say this because um it's really true one of my core values is authenticity and i was deciding whether or not to write the story i know i've shared this with Mm -hmm. you in an email and i said what would rich do rich would probably do it and that's kind of what you did in your own way um and then i did it and nothing really changed like i shared it didn't make the ocd go away Steve, super helpful there as a friend. Steve's been through some hard things in his life. He warned me that when the story gets published, you're going to feel like you've like conquered it. You declared victory. Like, don't get trapped by that. Like, it doesn't uh-huh. make the underlying thing go away. And I felt good for a day. And then the next day, like, you suck. Like, you shouldn't have written this. Like, right. life's awful. <laughs> um, but and, there is got to be something. Warned, which was yeah, good. So right. like I kind of knew, knew it was coming you and I'm like, okay, coming. like this thing doesn't just go away. Mm-hmm. And it took like a year of going to therapy once a week for the thing to go away. And but there is, gone. there is something about owning it and then sharing it publicly that 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 is a pressure release, right? I don't have to deal with those emails anymore. Yeah. Now it's like you, you, you seem to have all your stuff together and yet it also seems like you completely fall apart somewhat often. <laughs> like, yep, like now you're talking yeah, to the right guy. It's better. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that whole projection of like, how can I be like you? You're living this idealized life um, is, you know, it, it's, it's weird when you're on the receiving end of that. I can't stand the word self-help. 
I struggle with the word authenticity because it's been so co-opted, et cetera. But these are all important ideas, right? Like I don't consider myself a self-help person, really. Like I'm just trying to have interesting conversations with people. I'm as flawed and as human as anybody. Um, and it's and as frightening as it as it may be, sharing our frailties and our and our flaws, I think, is what connects us more deeply with our fellow humans in this shared experiment that we're having. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important just to like get the message out there that like no one has it figured out. Yeah, you know we're we're all kind of muddled. I got news for you. Yeah. yeah, no one does. You know, uh -huh. it doesn't matter how much of an expert. You know, I've you know worked with some world class athletes who are just you know going into a meet are just jittery and anxious messes, right? Because they don't have it figured out either. Yeah. Where everyone's looking at them like, oh, they're the ones that it, they have yeah. the answer. Exactly. Right? And you, you have a very, I mean, we talked about this last time, um, but it's in the new book and I think it is relevant to what we're talking about today. Um, have had your own you know, journey with all of this as somebody who came out of the gate, uh, you know, as this incredible runner, almost broke four minutes for the mile, ran 401. Uh, and then this becomes the quote unquote like identity that like follows you around for a very long period of time to the point where you just want to get as far away from it as possible. So talk a little bit about like how that evolution has brought you to this place. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's kind of the the heart of this book, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's that fact that I loved running, absolutely loved it. I mean, I would do it even if I didn't race anything like that. Um, but then you get success, right? And then you get known for this. And then, you know, at 18, I'm running on, you know, a, a professional meet on NBC Live and like cameras on me and all uh -huh. this stuff. And then your identity becomes wrapped around it, right? Where it, for, for a while I struggled and still struggle on, you know, Am I Steve the failed runner? Because I never went under four, never met right. my expectations. But you're the only one who attaches that word to that. Right, right? exactly. Everyone and it, else is like, that dude ran 401, or <laughs> that's the guy who ran 401. Yeah, exactly. But it, <laughs> yeah. It, in your head at that moment, like mm -hmm. you, th you blow it up into this big thing of people must see me this way. And, you know, for a long time, like I'd show up for, you know, a, a weekend 5K local race and I would hate it if someone recognized me out there mm -hmm. because I'd be like, well, I'm just going to go run, you know, 15, 16 minutes or something not up to like my par of right. what I thought was good enough. And I would despise being out there and doing things. And like for years, I didn't race because of that. For years, I kind of um, regretted or it didn't have a good relationship with running, which is something that, again, I grew up loving and was a passion and all that stuff. So how did you get to the other side of it? <laughs> you know, I, I think I think it's a it's a couple fold things. This first, you know, where I really realized it is after I held I held the Texas state record for high school in the mile. Mm -hmm. And someone broke that a couple years ago. I remember like being there watching it and then being like, no one cares. Like, right. doesn't matter. Like, it's just like me in my head of like, hey, this matters. Like, you're a state record holder, right. like, blah, blah, blah. 
No one cares. The no headline in the paper the next yeah. day wasn't yeah. like Steve Magnus no longer holds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But in your head, you uh-huh. blow it up to this big thing. So I think that's that was like the in catharsis of it. But it was really, you know, um, changing my relationship and getting back to like why I did this activity in the first place. And really on a from a coaching standpoint, that played a large role. Because I was working with, you know, college kids who are 18 to 22 who are enjoying this sport. Not many of them are going to go pro or go to the Olympics or whatever have you. And it's really saying, what am I trying to help these kids with? Like, what what should their relationship with this sport that they enjoy doing be? Right. And, like, doing that with other people really brought it home of, like, okay, like, I'm trying to cultivate this in them. What do I want to cultivate in myself? And at at a more meta level, it's almost like there's this surface level dimension where we're all playing this game where you win, you lose, you have success, you have recognition. And that stuff feels good when you're in that game. But underneath it, there's like this more like ultimate dimension, which is really about like love, right? And do you love the thing that you're doing? Are you connected to other people? Are you helping them? Mm-hmm. And it can be hard to exist in both those games at once. So there's nothing wrong with playing the surface level game. And like we talked about, getting excited when you do well. But if you get completely stuck in that surface level game, that's when you can start to feel hollow and empty and the passion goes away. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a healthy game to play. It's not sustainable. Uh, and it's not gonna make you happy. And I know that as somebody who's played that game, you know, it's very it's 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 very alluring to get caught up in a lot of that kind of statistical data around how well you're doing with everything that's available on the internet now when you put content out into the world. And I'm constantly having to like remind myself or bring myself back to the why behind what I'm doing. Um, and I'm as flawed as the next person and driven by ego and all that kind of stuff. And I'll get like, why is it, what, you know what I mean? And I'm like, I have to, it's a practice, right? Yes. Just like yeah. meditation is a practice. Yes. Okay, why am I doing this? What's important about this? It is about connection. It is about love. I started this because I love having these conversations. I wanna create a deeper connection with human beings and everything else around that is just ephemera. Yes, and, and that, that we say that in the book over and over, that passion is a practice. I think mm-hmm. that's another one of these flaws, right? So just find your passion, bullshit. Just follow your passion, bullshit. And be passionate, or like passion is like lightning striking, and then you're passionate. Like, no way, it is an ongoing practice, of cultivating, nourishing, and then coming back to what matters. Yeah, and, and it also involves doing a bunch of stuff you don't wanna do. Just yeah, because yeah. it's your passion doesn't mean you're like you're stoked about every single aspect of what's entailed in pursuing it. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's. I think it goes back to we have these like false ideas of like what it looks like, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's almost like the same thing you mentioned there with this comparison, right? We think this is reality over here, but it's not, right? We think passion means that like I'm going to enjoy this every single time that I do this, but a lot of passion is in that grind. And a lot of making something go from like interest to passion is actually in the grind of doing it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's something that that uh, everybody from Gary V to David Goggins talks about. Like Goggins talks about having to be, you have to be obsessed, you know, and you have to do, you have to get in the muck and you know, callous the mind and all that kind of stuff. And it's unbelievably inspirational. As much as he hates that word and would not use it, it is. Um, but it's also not necessarily a recipe for most people, because yeah. most people are not gonna wake up at 1.30 in the morning to go to the gym and do the things that David yeah. does. He can set this example that helps us you know, push through our own personal boundaries in maybe an incremental way, but how do we find um, a sustainable propelling fuel in passion that will allow us to flourish over the long run versus you know, the unhealthy you know, grind until you die? And and I think one of the things that is almost another nuanced part of this is it's it's not necessarily bad to almost like go all in for a little bit. Right. Right. Yeah. But it's like having the awareness to know like, all right, like to get this done, like I'm going to have to go this obsessive, go all in. But then I've got to come out of it unless I want to be down this path of like, I'm going to be obsessive and I'm going to burn out. And Just I'm go all this. the way into yeah. burning out. Yeah, and that goes to self-awareness, which is a big point of your book. I mean, you talk about the illusion of balance. We've talked about this before. Brad, you've written about this extensively. This is a you know a subject matter that's super important to me too, this illusion of balance. People saying you should eat a balanced diet and live a balanced life. Um, I don't adhere to that. I think that like you said, it's okay to go all in, but you have to have the self-awareness to then pull yourself back out. Um, like I talked about this with Michael Gervais and he said, instead of thinking about balance, just thinking, think about presence. Like, can you be present in what you're doing? And I think you guys have sort of gotten at the same idea, but you're using self-awareness. Yeah, I think so. What, what we mean by self-awareness is the ability to see the inertia of what you're doing and not to let that inertia drive you, but to make sure that you're driving the Mm. ship. And again, it's nuanced and it can be hard to tease out which of those two things it is. Um, And that inertia, part of that is from the external results that we talked about, but part of that is also just because you really like the thing. And it's this constant practice of looking back and saying, well, what am, I, what am I giving up as a result to go all in? What am I sacrificing? And is it, is it worth it? And just asking those questions is helpful, but what we found in what's in the book is there are, some, there are some concrete ways to do this that have been verified by science um, that then we've personally experienced. So one of my favorite is to disconnect and spend time in nature, experience awe. And I know in my own life, there is nothing like day hike or a backpacking trip that helps me figure out like, okay, like what, what matters to me? Like when I come back from that, what am I excited about? And I can tell you, it's not checking my Amazon sales rank. It's Mm -hmm. like spending quality time with people that I love and writing like like two activities that are completely unrelated to any external measures. Um, Another way to do this that we discuss in the book is to reflect on mortality. So um, a really I don't, I don't want to use the word good, but a powerful practice that we recommend is once a year, read a memoir of someone that's in the dying process. And coming out of a book like that, for a lot of people, it gets really clear how you, how you ought to be spending your time. And whether mm-hmm. you want to call that, it's almost like self-awareness is the skill that lets you be present for the things that matter. Mm-hmm. The thing is, if you're obsessed, 
you're not going to allow yourself to go on that day long hike because you're too obsessed. Hundred percent. That's the rub, yep. right? And that's why it's that's why we frame this as it's like these skill sets that you need to develop. Uh-huh. Because like you know, I've been there before. Like I've been totally hundred percent obsessed, all in. Forget about everything else, right? Um, and anybody can go there. But like what we're trying to get across is, hey, like if you can develop these skill sets of self-awareness, of creating a perspective, of giving yourself these other things to do, then you're going to be in a better position once that inertia keeps rolling mm-hmm. and you start to go down that path. You can take a, you know, divert and take a, a different path. I think what happens is somebody is super passionate about the business that they're starting or their athletic pursuits. Um, and they may have heard stories about how people can become too obsessed and too passionate, but um, they think it doesn't apply to them, that they're gonna be different, right? Yep. And so whether it's um, the woman at Theranos, you know, yeah. or, you know, what happened at, uh, at um, Enron. Enron, exactly. Yeah, is the other example that you use in the book. Um, we see passion unleashed in an out of control way, in the same way that, like, it's very similar to what Ryan talks about in Ego of the Enemy. You know, an Ego is the Enemy, where when these things are unchecked, things that we think are, are positive uh, forces that are propelling us to succeed ultimately become our Achilles heel that destroy us. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's the important point to make is no one starts out thinking like, I'm going to be obsessive and this <laughs> yeah. is going to be bad, right? Right. Uh-huh. Everyone starts out and like, I enjoy this. This is passionate about it. Right? But some people will say, I'm going to outwork everybody. Yeah, that's and true. And that's how I'm going to make it. That is true. And I, But it comes out of a place of I'm going to outwork people because this is going to be good for me, right? Mm-hmm. No one thinks that I'm going to do this to burn out. Right. And I think that, I think that's why it's incredibly important to like a cultivate these skills, but also like have people around you to have, to give you that that check, right? Mm-hmm. To put you almost back in place when you're headed down these directions. Yeah, it's you know the out, and sometimes you do need to outwork everybody. Like again, this this book is it's a deep dive into nuance. Like trying really hard works until it gets in your way. Mm-hmm. And then the practice is, well, how do I identify when it's getting in your way? Well, that goes back to the self-awareness piece. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that seems to be almost the most important aspect of all of this. Because if you lack self-awareness or you're just disconnected from yourself, then you're not going to be able to really um, navigate the treacherous waters of figuring this stuff out. Exactly. I mean, if you don't have self-awareness, you probably are gonna have difficulty figuring out what you're passionate about to begin with. Yeah. The most important thing you can do is invest in that personal journey to be integrated enough so that you can trust your instincts and and you know have a kind of reliable constitution for making these judgment calls. Totally, but self-awareness is it's a part of this passion of practice. Uh, we think the word self-awareness, oh, I know myself better than anyone knows me. It's not true. No, it's there's, not. There's only um, some really neat research that 95% of people are not self-aware is judged by a complete stranger 
can better assess their personality against validated scales than they could. Only, <laughs> only, only about. I'm not surprised, <laughs> but that's just real. That's so only, amazing. Only about five yeah. percent of people can can do better. And what's really interesting, what do they? What criteria that, are they the, judging? The ninety five percent of people are the ones that think that they're the most self aware. Uh huh. So it's like this delusional effect that lots of us. Lots, lots of us have. I don't know the exact criteria. It's in the book. In the, there are validated um, psychological measures of, I think it's personality, like various personality traits. And let's say that you were to go do some interaction and a stranger were to watch you. And then the stranger rates how you would fit into these quadrants and then uh -huh. you rate it. The stranger does better with a trained psychologist yeah. eye on you. Uh -huh. um, and that's that's what we've come to coin, like the inertia you don't see clearly when you're in the midst of all this inertia. So community is huge and people that you trust, because it's one thing to ask someone and not really listen. It's another thing to ask someone, have them tell you, wait a minute, go this way and, and trust them enough to do it. And then there are things that you can do as a part of this practice of passion to develop the ability to see yourself more clearly. That's fascinating. One, one of the simplest um, and very tactical things that we, we recommend in the book is pretend that you're giving advice to a friend. And it sounds like- In giving advice to yourself. And then give yeah. advice to yourself. And this comes up for me all the time um, in a very particular way. And that is around my own exercise habits. So I tend to never want to miss workouts. And uh, that will often mean training when I have an injury and I probably shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And I will, without fail, there's two guys I go to the gym with, Scott and Justin. I'll be walking to the gym and I'll be like, if Scott's biceps tendon was hurting him, and he asked me if he should bench press, what would I say? And the answer is always, dude, take a week off. Like, you're fine. And I have to ask myself that question like six times on the way to the gym. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I won't bench press. But if I don't ask that question, I'm going to the bench press. Um, and that's just a very concrete example. But I, I think that, that that little twist, if you really imagine someone that could be in a similar situation than yourself or as yourself, and then ask that question, that can be helpful. Yeah, it's almost more complicated than simple self-awareness because you can have the self-awareness to know that it's not a good idea for you to bench press, but then you're gonna do it anyway. Yourself, yeah. You're still gonna do it. Yeah. So there's self-awareness and then there's the action taken upon that self-awareness. Yeah, exactly. We're we're almost working against like our inbuilt cognitive <laughs> biases, right? I mean, we're we're unbelievably like rudimentary creatures yeah. in so many ways. Like when you look at the judicial system and how unreliable witness testimony is, like all these things that we think we're good at, we're absolutely horrible at. Exactly. And right. we have a we have an inbuilt bias to tell a story that is good for us. Of right? course. No one wants to sit around and be like, oh, I'm a liar, cheat, et cetera, et cetera. Uh -huh. or like oh, I'm not strong enough to do this, right? We have an incentive to tell ourselves a good story in our head. So it's almost like we need these checks and balances to make sure that like we get out of our own way. And to react to a good story. Yeah. Like, oh, find your passion. Like just wait for lightning to strike and then you'll be happy. Okay, that sounds good. I'm gonna wait for lightning to right. strike. And when you follow it, like pursue it. My mom, uh, she sent me this book well before we were writing this. And I love my mom to death, and and she, she's a very um, what's the word I'm looking for, just very emotive in a nurturing way. And she had this book of like passion quotes, and of course I pulled it out when I started on this project. And it's uh -huh. like pursue your passion with reckless abandon, like yeah. act as if you couldn't fail. The world is watching, 
And I'm like, oh my gosh. But like, you're you're gonna have a panic attack just reading that. <laughs> right, right. But this is the kind of but this is the kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff that that's, that's out what's there out there. Because yeah. it sounds really nice uh-huh. and then people end up trapped. Yeah. Um that's so funny, man. I think it's uh it's it's really it's really hard. And and I think we've moved away from that kind of community integration that you know, for thousands and thousands of years, this is how humans lived. And now we're so fractured, right? We're lucky if we have one or two good friends who knows us well enough to call us on our bullshit because they see us consistently enough. Um, But I think with that progressive isolation, that level of self-awareness becomes even more for, you know, more deeply jeopardized. It becomes more difficult to like, really under, see whether you're you're operating in an objective way. And it's even worse in today's modern society, mm-hmm. right? Because we're going to project an image on Instagram or Twitter. Right, exactly. Or wherever yes. it is, right? Uh-huh. So we are, we're almost in like the habit in business yeah. of projecting how we want to be. So uh-huh. not only do we have to deal with our own delusions, but now we're creating them. So and there's an the, expectation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and then, yeah, just like the writing, like how do I live up to this, you know, image that I've crafted for myself? Yeah, it's tough. It's not good, right? No, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, 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 and that's, again, that's, that's part of the practice of passion is to be vulnerable and to build community and to have people that you trust. Um, and that all leads to harmonious passion versus the obsessive passion is this, uh, I've got it all together, I'm bulletproof, I can't fail. And then what happens, as Steve said, there's this identity fusion. And then when you do fail, well, it's not just the thing failed, it's you failed. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly lying becomes more um, of a temptation, acting unethical. There's, uh, there's some research that we profile in the book that athletes who use steroids are so much more likely to, so, so I'll step back. There, there's this model developed by a psychologist named Robert Valorant, and it's a survey that lets you answer questions and it will tell you you're obsessive or harmonious mm-hmm. and where in the spectrum you fall because it's not black or white. There's a direct correlation with people that fall in the obsessive side in steroids and sport and unethical behavior in business. Mm. And it makes total sense because again, if the thing that you're passionate about is the result and your identity is tied to that result you're gonna and the result the doesn't happen, you're gonna do anything to get the result. Cause as Steve so often says, it's no longer an attack on your business, it's an attack on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and when we're talking about it, it sounds so clear, but it's when you're in it and you're doing the thing, it's this really slippery slope. And sometimes without self-awareness, it can happen and you don't know it's happening, that you're going from harmonious to obsessive. Well, you see this on the day-to-day too, right? How many times have you gotten in it in an argument with a friend or your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend? And like you go into that defensive mode where it's like, oh, they're attacking me. Yeah. And it's not about the argument anymore. It's about like you winning this so that like your ego 
can uh, or in your sense of self can that's like in, that's like every you know political argument or yeah. or kind of the diet wars that you see like yeah. Brad we've talked about this yeah. too it's become like so tribal and polarized like yeah. I just don't even want to be part of that yeah, whatsoever don't talk about right and diet. because it's <laughs> you know people so self-identify with their tribe mm -hmm. that any any kind of cogent objective discussion is impossible because it is so personalized. So an attack against this idea or argument or perspective becomes an attack on who you are as a human being. And that of course is gonna make you defensive. Exactly, yeah. and, and that pushes us more into our own tribe. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, then you're just yeah, and then on social media, you signal to that tribe to make sure that they know that you're a member in good standing mm -hmm. of that. So like those arguments are about making sure that you're affirming your membership in that group much more so than they are about changing the minds of somebody who's outside of that group. Totally. One, one, one practice in coming back to the, the example in particular of, of passion that, um, cause again, this stuff can make sense intellectually, but then it's hard mm. to actually act on. One practice that we, we recommend in the book uh, that we heard from just about everyone that we, we interviewed that has, had a long career and, and stayed harmoniously passionate is this notion of very swiftly returning to the work itself. So if you have a huge success as a writer, celebrate the success because yeah. there's something to say about celebration and joy. That's important. But then don't take too long before you get back to writing. And the same thing after a failure. Like it's okay to be sad and to grieve a defeat, but then get back to the thing itself because in the case of a victory, getting back to the thing is humbling. And in the case of a defeat, getting back to the thing is like, well, I really like I like this thing, you know? I'm doing it because of the activity, not because of the results. And it literally it prevents your brain from grooving in those neural pathways that are associated with validation, bestseller, Olympic medal. It's nope, running. Like back to the activity. This is what I like. And in the case of defeat, same thing. You're you're short circuiting the brain's process to really hardwire all these negative emotions or I'm a failure. And then that just builds more pressure for the next time. It's again, nope, back to the act. Right, so you're reinforcing process as being the end game as opposed to the results of that process being the determining factor in how you feel about what you do. Yeah, because the results are, they're so transient. If you think like we spend our life in the process, mm -hmm. the amount of time that you look at the New York Times thing and see your book as a bestseller is one second. Yeah. But then you can spend years thinking about it or being bummed out that you missed it. And like like your friend Mike Gervais said, not really present for your life. And there's something about getting back to the thing that doesn't let that that delusional, not even delusional, but that being elsewhere, worrying about success or failure, take root in your brain. Yeah, and let's just be honest, that's very hard because yes. listen, if you're gonna open up the New York Times and you're gonna see that your book is listed on that special list that they make in that newspaper mm -hmm. once in a while, uh, that is intoxicating, right? Yep. And that's something that's gonna get you excited. And also it's gonna lie to you. It's gonna tell you that this is what's gonna change your life. This is what's gonna make you feel okay. This is, what's this is why it's all worth it, et cetera. All of that, which is an illusion, of course, um, that you don't realize until you experience it and re and understand in, in you what, don't feel any different in, in, about your life. And what is that? <laughs> what is that sound as you describe that where we started? Eerily like it's like addiction, mm -hmm. right? Like that's yeah. the paseo, that's the suffering. 
So, you know, you said, is passion good or bad? And I'm like, it depends. Well, that kind of passion might feel good, just like your next hit feels good. But ultimately, that leads to suffering because it's constantly craving. And once it goes away, you're miserable. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the- But if you love writing, then you're like, this is awesome. This just means I get to do this more. Yes, but then get back to the work. <laughs> Don't sit there talking right. about how you're a New York Times bestselling yeah. author. Be proud of yourself. Don't minimize the success, but then like ass in the chair, start writing. If you're an Olympic medalist, you got to get paid. Like go do the media spots, but on the track, I guess in this case, it's feet on the track, start running. And same thing in business. Um, really successful executives are the executives that do the work. Not the executives that talk mm-hmm. about the work, not the executives that you know go, go on TV about the work, but the ones that do the work. Mm-hmm. And all the science that you guys reviewed right in this book, what was what were some of the more surprising findings that you came across as it relates to passion? I, I got one. It was you sure. think. That, yeah. So there's the, there's um, a neuropsychiatrist named Mark Lewis, and uh, his work around what happens when you're in the throes of an obsessive passion uh, shows that it's very similar to individuals suffering from eating disorders. Whoa. Because when someone's suffering from an eating disorder, when they look in the mirror, they don't necessarily see someone that is too thin and sick. They see someone that is too big. And it's the same brain activity when someone is in the throes of an obsessive passion. So their company may be failing, they may be ruining their marriage, they may be lying to the feds, but they don't they don't see all, any of that. They just see like, we're on this mission, gotta succeed, right. just like the person with an eating disorder has gotta lose more weight. Um, and that's that that's that's that linkage again. That's passion, right? In the mm-hmm. case of the 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 not the person with the eating disorder, you can even say an eating disorder is passion about losing weight. Yeah, to the you can degree. be very passionate about destroying your life. Yeah, you can yeah. be very passionate about being a victim. All those things are true. Um, so so the the the. When the idea came together, we started like these are interesting concepts to explore. But then the science really drilled it home that like passion, suffering, it's one coin, and it's often about where where you direct it. Another example that's similar uh, is if you think about the act of training for the Olympics to swim. You were a swimmer, mm-hmm. six to eight hours a day in the pool. Maybe I don't know. Maybe there's some land work. So you are staring at a line in water to the exclusion of everything in your life for six to eight hours a day. And when you're not in the pool, you're probably thinking about your workout. That sounds a lot like OCD. Like the obsession is Olympics and training and the compulsion is you swim. But it's pointed in a positive direction. And I I think Olympic athletes are awesome and super inspirational. But what we want to do is we want to point out like this stuff just isn't so simple. Right, it's insanity. (laughs) It is insanity. Right. Right, so we're very... You know, in in the way that we're selective about which animals we love and which animals we eat, we're selective about which obsessions we socially approve of and which we decide are addictions that we need to malign. And And it's the gift and the curse. I'll say one last thing about, because the OCD part in particular, um, the closest thing, and it's still a world away, but the closest thing I can describe to my brain when it's in the storm of OCD is my brain when I'm writing because it's just like I'm locked into the book. Like it feels somewhat similar. I could be at the dinner table, but I'm thinking about the book. I could be at the gym, but I'm thinking about the book. It's just, Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with it. And that is a great gift. And I really like writing, 
But it's that same brain chemistry that if it's pointed in another direction, it, you know, can right. go awry. So there's this notion of there's there's at least I think like there's two ways to go about it. There's realizing that your temperament is as such and pointing that in positive directions. And at the same time, there's working on self-awareness and skills to be able to turn that off when you want to and to be able to choose to. And I think, you know, that's the kind of greater thing that we noticed in this book is it's it's all this stuff is on a spectrum, right? It's not good or bad. Um, if you look at Olympic athletes, like when they're done with the Olympics and on their break, let's say they exhibit the exact same symptoms as an addict t getting taken off drugs, right? Uh -huh. Depression, anxiety, all those things happen. And the same thing, you know, talking with Brad a little bit <coughs> is actually... Growing up, like I had OCD. I just didn't know I had it. So I had all these compulsions. So I'd have to touch doorknobs or else I thought I was gonna, like something bad mm -hmm. was gonna happen. Turn my alarm on and off seven times before I went to bed or else I thought I'd wake up dead. Stuff like that. And those were all, in retrospect, looking back, oriented around running performance. Like Not ritual, originally, but, but ritualistically. Yes, all ritualistic. Right. And, but like, as I grew up or as I grew into running, like I just directed all of those uh, like rituals and obsessions towards running. Uh -huh. So running the training for running itself became obsessive compulsive. Yeah. It was like, I have to go out for this run or else like I'm going to have these horrible anxiety, et cetera, that's overwhelming. So I'm going to go out for this run. So I think when we look at that and if I look at other athletes that I've helped out, like if you look at them, a lot of them are on that spectrum of having some sort of obsession and compulsion to have to do it. Yeah. I mean, you almost have to have some degree if you're going to go out and run, I don't know, 120 miles a week, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've I've manifested certain aspects of that. I mean, I relate to that a lot. Like I would have to be the first person to arrive for a morning workout. Like I like little, you know, just things that are meaningless, but were, to me is like, oh, I wasn't the first one here. And then I had a certain way I had to wash my bathing suit like after I was yeah. done. That had to be done in a certain way. It was completely OCD and insane, right? But you trick yourself into thinking that these are related to ultimately your performance later on. Exactly. You know? It's that like <laughs> inner mind game where you're yeah. like, no, I have to do this because this this is going to help me perform or this mm. is good. This is why I'm good at this. And if I don't do this ritual, if I don't follow this, then I'm not going to be good at it. And but, as somebody, sorry, go ahead. But I was just going to say in, in that sense, it's almost like accepted. Right, because it's yeah. like, oh, this You're is like, for oh, he's good. driven. He's yeah. driven, and yeah. we we tie it up into like, oh, that person's just really passionate about running. He's just super driven and super intrinsically driven. Like, I don't have. If you were asked to coach, or if you were asked to ask my coach at that time, like, I don't have to worry about him. He's going to do his workout. He's going to get everything done, and it's all in this positive light. But if we frame those same behaviors in a different context, we'd like be like, oh, that's negative. That person needs this help. And this this person yeah. needs to go do this. So as somebody who lived through that and who now coaches, how do you counsel your athletes when you start to see indicia of this kind of OCD behavior? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, one of the things that I try and do is is starting with that awareness and understanding of what they're doing. And if this behavior is like almost if they're in control of it or not, 
Because I think the biggest thing I saw with myself is that over time, it's almost like these OCD behaviors took control, right? Where mm-hmm. if you didn't do them, then like extreme anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the definite, real quick, that's the definite, <laughs> like clinical OCD, the definition is like you totally lose control and it's just nonstop, 24 right. seven. Um, so I think it's important to say like these, these to me, these are still on spectrums because I've always been super ritualistic, but then like for 16 hours a day, like when I was in the thick of it, if I was sitting here, I'd look at that glass and be like, oh, I could just like jab that into my neck. And then massive anxiety. Whoa. So it's it's. I just want to be clear because yeah. I I I'm, I've become really cautious about like using those terms. But I do think that it's still the same spectrum because it's the same thing. It's just that this is in a way where maybe it's two hours a day, and then pathologically it's just nonstop. Okay, uh-huh. sorry, Steve. I just want to point no, that out. No, it, I mean it's and I think it's all on this extremes, right? It's like yeah. growing up, like even outside of the running context, like I had all different OCD classified behaviors, totally. right? But I wasn't going to sit there and wash like I didn't have it so bad that I was going to wash dishes for two hours, right? Or wash or my like, hands you know, for yeah, two like hours. Yeah, like walk around in a circle yeah. for ten hours or it, do something. Exactly, crazy, and that's you know. I think that's where it's really important yeah. to see the spectrum. And yep. I think that's what's really important about human nature is I don't know about other you know uh, mental health issues, but I imagine they're all on these different spectrums, and then. Just in the athletic world, you know, people who maybe are mildly on this spectrum have channeled it into this thing, right? So we've accepted it as like Yeah, we normal. reinforce it. Right. We yeah. celebrate so it, yeah. actually. Exactly. And in a lot of sports, they do. And a lot of coaches actually do. They'll reinforce this like, oh, that worked last time? Like, keep doing this ritualistic behavior. Mm-hmm. And then it spirals and can spiral out of But control. if you could control it, and the outcome is positive, then I think it's a good thing. Like David Goggins, who you just had on your show, he is a super disciplined creature of routine. At least it sounds like it. And he seems to be loving it and enjoying life and inspiring people. So maybe that's not a problem. And again, it's like this, well, it's the gift and the curse. It depends on where it's pointed. Maybe it even depends on at what point in your life you're at, right? If you're doing certain behaviors when you've got two little kids at home, maybe that is harmful. Whereas if you don't have two little kids, it's great. So it's these kind of nuanced things. Right. And Steve, as a coach, though, when you do see athletes starting to demonstrate this kind of stuff, like what is the what is the path to getting them to snap out of it or or developing some greater self-awareness around what's yeah, actually going I, on? I think it depends on actually how severe the issue is, yeah. right? And if it's just little things here and there, like you make them aware of it and you say like, hey, like, Let's, you know, if it's not a big deal, let's try this race over here in this safe environment without doing this. Yeah, thing. without let's, tying your shoes right. six times in a row exactly. or whatever. Yeah. In and that's exposure therapy. <laughs> yeah. Like when yeah. I went through therapy, that's basically it. Like you expose yourself to the thing yeah. that you're scared of without reassuring in yourself. In a low risk environment. Not, not, at, not, at yeah. the, not at the big meet. No, not, yeah. not right yeah. off the bat. Low risk. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. that's the thing is you're trying to get, you know, I call it like you're going to feel this almost like anxiety from it because it's like your ritual. But what I want them to get used to is just to sit with it, right? And if you can have the ability to like just sit with that and understand and see it like come and like mm-hmm. go and nothing happens and you raced fine and all that good stuff, then you can get out of that. But, you know, on the same side, like I've had athletes who have exhibited behaviors that um further along in the spectrum there and i think that's where it's almost where you need bring professional bring professionals in right because if it starts 
infiltrating other aspects of their life or starts infiltrating or interfering with, you know, making it where running and racing is no longer something that is enjoyed, yeah. but instead something that like, okay, I have to go through this and do this and do this and do this just to get on the starting line. And then I don't really enjoy doing this, but mm-hmm. it's the only thing I've done and my identity's wrapped around it around it. So I'm going to continue doing that. Yeah. It's an example of, of passion turning malignant. Like it's yeah. all, it almost becomes this cancerous growth as opposed to this, you know, beautiful sustaining force. Exactly. hundred percent. Right. And one of the things we talk about when we talk about passion is how to find it, how to find your passion, then how to chase it, how to chase your passion, how to live your passion. But what we don't talk about is when it's time to let go of your passion mm. and move on with your life, right? And that's, that might be my favorite chapter in your book by just bringing this up and using examples of other people like who have come to this place of deciding like, hey, I know that my identity was wrapped up in this, but it's time to do something different. So can you guys talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna let Steve take this first because I think Steve directly experienced it with himself running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I'm I mean, I think it's it's almost like you have to come to peace with it, right? You have to come to terms and peace with whatever you're doing and having like the awareness that this isn't just this isn't the only thing I am. This isn't the only only person I am. It goes back to the identity piece, right? And you have to come to terms with that before moving on to the next thing. And I think it's really hard, you know, on an athletic level, especially, because if you look at athletes, when are they done? In their 20s, maybe if they're lucky, their mm-hmm. 30s, right? And they've spent their entire lives like building towards this thing and wrapping yourself around this one thing. And then you get to the point where most people are building their careers and you have to like end yours. And then all of a sudden you're like the 22 year old out of college figuring out, okay, what's next? What's the meaning gonna, like, where am I gonna get? With the snap of a fingers, it's over, overnight. And so many athletes find themselves thinking for the very first time Mm -hmm. about what might come next because their training, their whole life around the pursuit of excellence in their sport is so all-consuming. There almost isn't any room for entertaining what's gonna come after. Yeah, and it's in sport in itself, like is very good at giving you like this end goal and this purpose and this definitive thing to shoot for. Well, life is kind of nebulous to a degree, uh-huh. right? We have to make those decisions ourselves. When we're in sport, like those decisions are kind of made for us. Yeah. So it's kind of it, like a mili- in the military. Exactly. Well. Yeah. So I think it, it takes a lot of work. And I think uh, in the sporting front, like you need more work on, on preparing people to make that transition. And, you know, they have the skill set needed, but no one tells you how to like find something or how to, you know, direct your purpose and drive to something new and different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a huge problem. You know, I think that that the NC2A or every college, every um, you know, sporting federation should have something set up to help athletes transition out of their sports 
to make it a more graceful entryway into the workforce. I've seen, I experienced this myself. Like I wasn't even that good. And I had like, you know, a major existential crisis. It's like a mourning. It's like a funeral when you finally say, I'm going to put this away and I'm going to do something else. And you know, what makes it worse is you know that you have this ability to dedicate yourself, to work incredibly hard, to, you know, to endure suffering, like all of these characteristics that you think would translate into the workforce and be valued. But if you're disconnected from what it is that you might be interested in or good at because you'd never really thought about it, <laughs> then it's hard to figure out, you know, how to, you know, find the round hole for the round peg. Yeah. And you end up like, and there's a lot of people that struggle with drugs and alcohol and all these kinds of problems because they don't know what to do. And there's nobody there. Everyone just has been, they've been on the cover of magazines for like yeah, a decade yeah. and then suddenly they're a civilian and they're like, okay, go be an accountant. You, I don't know. You know, we, we talked about our cultivating your passion via dabbling in interest. Well, in college, if you're an athlete, you know this as well. Like you don't get time to dabble in <laughs> no. any other interests, right? Uh -huh. It's go to class and like, you know, go to practice and compete and all that stuff. You know, athletes at the college level, like they don't get to do the internships or these other things a lot yeah, of times. The year abroad or it, the- Exactly, mm -hmm. to find things that like, hey, this might be worthwhile pursuing. So I think like, you know, we could talk about the pros all day, but I think the the college level from transitioning from a, you know, 21, 22 year old kid then to the workplace is it's almost heartbreaking, right? Because mm -hmm. you have all these kids who, you know, the administration, the college athletics, athletic directors say, hey, go represent us. Like, go get on the magazines, go get on the TV, go get this publicity. And then, you know, most of you aren't going to make it professional, but you're going to have to figure mm -hmm. out something. And then you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I have this degree in something that I took just so that I could stay eligible and have this degree. But like, I don't really know, need or know what I can do. Yeah. And what also happens is that, at least speaking personally, there's almost a sense of shame because you're, you know what it's like to feel so plugged into something and passionate and driven and directed. And then suddenly that gets taken away. You can't do that anymore. Um, but the bar is set so high in terms of what's going to get you excited about getting out of bed in the morning. And the chances that you're gonna find a job that's gonna give you that are pretty low, well, right? Well, just think of, <laughs> you know, just like, think you of, know, you know com yeah. compare the adrenaline, the yeah. dopamine of all that, of racing, like, you know, a, a Pac-12 championship or NCAA right. championship versus going and saying, hey, like I'm the lowest level like accountant at this, this company. Right. There is no, you don't get that hit. I mean, play it out in a sport where you know you can't really pursue a living, but perhaps you're the best in the world at it. Like you get, a, you get an Olympic, yeah, yeah, you get an Olympic gold medal in fencing. You're yeah. the best fencer in the whole world. But then, I mean, I guess you could go like be in the movies, like sort of <laughs> teach people how to sword fight in movies. I don't know, but you're not gonna be able to be a professional fencer and support yourself. So you're gonna have to join the workforce. Like how are you gonna do that and do it gracefully and do it in a way where you feel good about the new path that you're gonna be blazing for yourself. I mean, that is a very tall order. And if you're doing that alone, which you probably are, because there's nobody there saying, hey, we know this is gonna be really rough, like right. let, let me help you. It's a disaster waiting to happen. So I think that the, the 
there there is no easy answer as Steve said it's really hard I think something that hopefully th- this book and this conversation um, leads to more conversation is just around transition out of sport particularly at collegiate levels and how awful it is and like the human suffering that results from this uh, particularly and I'm gonna go off topic a little but like these kids aren't paid either mm-hmm. so yeah. like it's really pretty much a heist right unless you're the half a percent that makes it is a pro so that just pisses me off but anyways i think that there needs to be more help along the way in cultivating some other interest and also helping people to see that what you do develop is a collegiate athlete is the ability to go all in on something and that is a function can be applied in different areas so coming out of school, you might not have the, the skills to go work in finance or consulting or writing, but you certainly have the work ethic. Mm-hmm. And I'd almost argue that the discipline and the work ethic can be harder to cultivate than the skill. So imagine if there were these transition out of sport programs where you had someone to work with you to identify certain areas at which you could put use that drive. And, and that would be successful. And there are pilot programs that work with athletes to do just that. And that's really geared around entrepreneurship because it's the same kind of attitude that yeah. like you're representing yourself and like you're going all in, but those programs are pilots. And I think that they need to be the norm or at least something like that. And rather than be like, you are a runner, now go get a job. It's you are a driven person that knows how to channel that drive. Mm-hmm. You can apply that to anything. Let's find something that you like. Yeah, I think it's important to, I think what you said is really important. The piece about, um, recognizing the uh, the how do I want to say this um, the self control like the idea that an athlete is is self directed um, but that dictates that in the workforce they need to feel a sense of ownership and direction over the path that they're taking like the athlete know I know how to, what to do for myself to get this performance out of myself and I'm responsible for putting in the work and then I'm responsible for the result. Uh, is very different from being the lowest rung on a team where you're you're, you're completely disempowered, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is the the exact opposite of what that athlete journey is all there's, about. Um, I'm not saying that very. No, you're saying it well. There's but, there's a really um, there's a neat company. Um, it's called Valor Perform, and it's a small startup. The woman that founded it, her she's awesome. Her name's Sarah Milby. She played soccer at Wisconsin, I think. Uh, maybe not Wisconsin, but she played college soccer. Uh-huh. And the whole business is built on, we're going to take former pro and high-level collegiate athletes and have them work in this um, this Valor Perform, where then they're helping businesses and coaching on performance. Mm. Um, so this company is like a year and a half old, so it'll be really interesting to follow. But a huge part of the mission is to only recruit former athletes. Huh. Um, and then design an organization that is not a big bureaucracy, but that lets people have autonomy and control and push. And it's an experiment. I don't know how it will turn right. out, but I think that ideas like that are are really good and useful because I'm around elite athletes all the time, not as often as Steve, but like you don't have to be a coach to know like these people are really driven. And if you point them at something, they'll be great and they yeah. can enjoy it because they love doing the work. The problem just is that like you abandon them on this mm-hmm. island and you don't point them at anything. And then what ends up happening is they get a job in a big bureaucracy and to both of your point, like that can't compare. Right. I would also encourage any athlete who's listening to this, uh, collegiate athlete or or otherwise, to 
take a tip from what you guys said earlier, which is uh, this is not like finding your passion isn't like the love of your life kind of thing. Like you can have multiple passions and just because you're all in on your sport and it doesn't even have to be sports. It could be whatever it is. Just because you're all in on, on one thing doesn't mean that you've crowded out all the space uh, to be interested in something else. Um, so try to cultivate a side hustle passion yeah. you know, at the same time so that you are planting those seeds for what your future like might become. So a great example of that is there's Olympic swimmer named Tyler Clary, who's like now getting into stock car racing, like race car driving, which is yeah. something he was kind of doing. I, I'm sure he, I don't know enough about it, but I'm sure he's been doing it for a very long time. Probably loved doing it as a kid. And, but he's, he's developed some skill and some relationships and some acumen in that world when he was still competing and racing and swimming. And now he's stepping out and like, he's ready to like for this new chapter, right? It's almost like, you're paving the way for that along the way. So try to bear that in mind while you're still pursuing that, you know, ultimate like super passion. And I think that gets at that almost misnomer that like in order to be great at something, you have to be 100% all in, uh -huh. which I don't think holds true, right? It's, well, you're doing that swimming, let's say, okay, be all in at practice, but then you have all this other time of the day which you can utilize some portion of it to pursue other things that are interesting that won't take away from swimming. And I think it's almost like this ego thing where we think like, oh, if I'm gonna be the best writer in the world, then I only need to write. Yeah. And it has to be like this, and this is all I but need we to focus on. I know, I, if that was true though, then the best athletes would all be like people that live in the woods around where there's no people exactly. around them. and the best writers would be people who have no relationships with it. You know what I mean? It doesn't work that way. Right. And, um, and, 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 and to Steve's point with the swimming example, thinking about swimming is not the same thing as swimming. Yeah. Like when you're in class, when you're hanging out with like thinking about swimming. No. That like if anything, they're and just going to get in your when head. You're, when you're, you know, 21, 22, yeah, you can live in a dorm room and swim like six hours a day and whatever free time you have, you can play video games. And you could do that for a while, but you can't be a professional swimmer at age 30 and still be doing that. Exactly. You know what I mean? And yeah. this is something I talked with um, Carrie Walsh Jennings about, like how do you, Olympics after Olympics after Olympics after Olympics, okay, now you're married and now you have kids, it's easy to look at that and say, well, that's distracting me from being the greatest volleyball player of all time. But to mature into a place where you recognize and value the fact that that's actually making you a better athlete because yeah. it's making you a more grounded, well-rounded person yep. um, is a maturation process that is counterintuitive, but absolutely true. You, 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 you just said that so better than I would have said it. And I was thinking the exact same thing, which is like, like over time as you age too, I think that there's a, you gain some wisdom and you know, you say a maturation mm. process, that's exactly what it is. Um, I know for, so also call time out when we're giving advice to these collegiate kids, it's really hard. I often catch myself thinking about the book, the book release right. writing when I'm not writing the book. So it's an, again, it's a practice. So it, it's not like, oh, you now just like turn off the switch. It doesn't work like that. You have to constantly be practicing coming back. Um, the maturation process, I now have a kid, he's 10 months old. 
nothing has been better for my ability to be present than Theo. Mm -hmm. Because like he's just there. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like that the first three months, but now that he's doing stuff and he's he's like a little dude. Yeah. Um, but it I, it's hard to put into words and it sounds so cliche, but I've noticed that it's not that the other stuff seems less important and almost feels more important, but also much easier to turn off and step away from, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just another passion, right? And like parenting and having that relationship. Um, but I do think that as you add more to your life, it actually is all additive. It doesn't necessarily take away from the thing you're doing. Yeah. And you have to get more clear on what it is you're doing and how you're doing it because you don't have as much luxury when it comes to time. Oh, so well, yeah. Gotta, and and like, by no means is really the advice clear. to these college kids, yeah. like, go have a child. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, no, it's like, it's like a living, it's yeah. like a little living Zen master, right? Uh -huh. It's like you're writing and he cracks the whip and it's like, okay. Um, I mean, I've been on the phone with Steve, I don't know, many times. And it's like, oh, Theo just pooped in the bath. Like, gotta yeah. go. Yeah. This ingenious idea will have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, you guys. Well, we gotta uh, we gotta wrap this up, but I wanna I wanna do that by um, exploring your personal definition of passion for yourself, right? So, so Steve, if I'm to say like, well, explain to me your can you articulate to me your relationship with passion and what that looks like? Yeah. So I see it. I think it's important to understand that it's not black and white okay so i see it as for the majority of time i want to have a healthy harmonious relationship with passion uh -huh. but i also want the ability or the ability to go deep and to go all in on things but where i see my relationship right now is i have the awareness to understand when i'm doing that and to pull back out of that when i need to i like that but what is it that you're passionate about? Can you can you put a pin on that? Can I put a pin? So I'm, I guess now, like this might be a little cliche and maybe not super clear, but I like pursuing interesting ideas. So whether it's in coaching and looking at how to help athletes get faster, whether it's in writing and you know, getting these ideas on passion or in peak performance out there. It's exploring interesting ideas that are intriguing enough to me mm -hmm. to say, hey, I want to understand this at like a deep level so that I, hopefully I can convey that information to others to help them understand these things, you know, maybe even better than I do. I like that answer. I thought you were going to say, I mean, the obvious answer is uh, I'm passionate about running. I'm passionate about writing. I'm passionate about helping young athletes achieve their potential but you really broaden the aperture on it. Yeah, you know, I think that's maybe that that maturation you talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, if you asked me three, four years ago, I would have given you that answer. But as I've like branched out and have all these different interests in different places, I think that's the common theme tying them together, uh -huh. whether it's on like a, a personal one-to-one -one basis of working with an athlete or whether it's on a basis of, you know, one book to, you know, thousands of people. Yeah, It's all kind of similar of getting these ideas and trying to help people change and develop and grow. That's Brad. a tough act to follow. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
The question's pat like passion. What does that mean to me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you guys wrote this book yeah. about passion. So how yeah. do you th- how do you think and apply passion in your own life? So, like how do you define that? And is yeah. it I guess a you know, a question on top of that is is it important to define it for yourself and be clear about what you're passionate about and what that means? So right? I, I, I think that the way that I well, I think the question's then twofold, right? It's how does one define passion and then how important is it to constantly be clear? A working definition, I just jotted this down, that that I have is it's really caring about something, knowing that that thing might eventually break your heart mm-hmm. because you have to move on from it or the tides change and being okay with it and doing it anyways. However, let me just interrupt you there. Yes, in the athletic context, but if you're no, I'd say in any context. I mean, if you're a guitar player or something, you, know, you, you something that you could do your whole life. Yeah, but parent. Okay, so I'm thinking parenting. Like, eventually, my kid's going to move out. Hopefully, right. like that might be heartbreaking. And even guitar, I'd imagine there's a point like where the skills start to to fade with age. Maybe not. Okay. And maybe that's a good example. Um, but you're going to have letdowns. Like the more that you care about something, the higher the highs and the lower the lows and still pursuing that those things anyways. And doing it though with the self-awareness to, as Steve said, know when to choose, when like I need to pivot here. And then also having community underneath you because the community helps keep you grounded during those highs and helps support you during those lows. Yeah. And I think that the community and the bonds that come out of a passion is almost as powerful as the passion itself because it's in those relationships. Like that's what gives the life meaning. Mm-hmm. It's part of the reason we write books right. together. Um, is it's a lot of fun and it's like it's a beautiful relationships formed. And for the person who's out there who is struggling to identify their passion, uh, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but like what what are some steps that you can recommend for that person to begin the journey or the process of trying to connect with something meaningful that could blossom into how we think about passion. Yeah. Well, I I would just keep it really simple. Yeah. Is go dabble in in things. Mm-hmm. So put yourself inside your comfort zone, outside your comfort zone. Look at different things that you know, you might think like, hey, this is kind of interesting, as you pointed out earlier. Like, go to your childhood. Like, what were the things that, like, you would do when there was nothing else to do when you're just like, okay, I'm going to go do this for a couple hours, right? Finding different things that were interesting or are interesting to you. Uh, those are all potential passions, mm-hmm. right? There is no one like this is the one. All of those things are are potentially passions. And the only way you understand if they can like have that fan flame to turn into like that burning passion that we all know and think about is if you try them and try them a lot and see if it cultivates into that. If it has staying power, right? Exactly. I think we all have a lot of self-judgment around these things. Like, well, that's silly or stupid. I shouldn't do that, you know? But I think, so I think- it's important to remove that veil of judgment over yourself. Um, like, hey, maybe you should, you know, maybe it would be cool for you to be a puppeteer. Like, I don't, you know, whatever it is, like, if that's your thing, man, life is right. short. Totally. And, you know? and, and I'm so glad that you do the puppeteer example. I think of my uncle Bob. He's a financial advisor, a stockbroker for 60 years, you know, black suit, red tie. 
and now he makes beaded jewelry. Uh huh. And like that's his thing. Fine. Like you that's don't need awesome. you don't need to you don't need to like decide that you're going <laughs> to yeah. be in a rock band. Like make beaded uh-huh. jewelry. Um. Again, you know, don't be reckless. Be financially responsible. But um. Yeah. Like there's no there's no definition of success that you should shoot for. And if anything, if you are shooting for some definition of success, as we've discussed, like you're probably setting yourself up for pain and suffering. Right, so conversely, the next question is, if you are somebody who's blazing a path of passion, what are the warning signs to alert you that uh, perhaps your passion has become a little bit uh, unhealthy? When When the pursuit of results starts to become the dominating factor. And not when it's a factor, because again, unless you've done like extensive spiritual training and dissolved your ego, like it's always going to be a factor. But when it starts becoming the dominating factor, when it's hard Mm. to get back to doing the work or when the work itself no longer feels good, when the work feels like a chore because you're chasing the thing. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one prime example. And then another prime example is when you notice the temptation to cut corners or to cheat that is a sign that like you no longer have self-control. And if you're listening and you're there, don't judge yourself. That's great. You have self-awareness. You're there. Like course correct. You know, read the book, get a therapist, talk to a friend. Um, Because recognizing that is actually great because you've recognized it. It's when you don't recognize it that you get into trouble. Right. Do you have anything to add to that, Steve? Ah, those were great. I don't think I can top those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in the, in the writing of the book, was there anything that you came across in the research or the interviews of all the people that you spoke with um, that was at odds with your thesis going in? I don't even Where know. Do, like, do we have a thesis going in? Well, See, that's the thing. Our thesis you had like, to passion be like, is this like, weird <laughs> thing, and maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, maybe it's both, and presumably there's a way to live with it well. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that was interesting about this book is Going back to the beginning, like the way this came about was Brad and I sitting in a coffee shop, right? Saying, hey, this first book is done. Like, we don't have anything to do on this for a month. And like, we're here together for a week. Like, what are we going to do? So we just started these conversations and talking about it. So it's not like we went in with any grand thesis or grand idea. It started as, hey, this is interesting. And then, yeah. And then even the writing on the page. So like in our relationship, like I'd say Steve is primary scientist. I'm primary writing. And then we switch. So Steve's like off doing science. And this is before peak performance went out. And I'm going to the same coffee shop every single day and like writing stories as if I'm writing this book. Uh And then I'm like, Steve, I've written a bunch. And Steve's like, dude, I have this enormous outline of science. And then we got together and like we traded and suddenly like there's a book. Square it up. But we didn't really, you're right. We did not set out to write a book on passion. Yeah. We just were doing what felt like we had this time and space. We were doing what felt natural. And then it became a book. And I, I think the other part is we were doing- It's very meta. Yeah. Because it's like <laughs> you followed this thread of passion to write this book about passion and you did it in the right way because your intention was- and it's helped us and it, and and again back to like the no one has their shit figured out it it has helped me i know it's not like i no longer care about success i care a lot about success it's helped me be aware when i'm caring too much about that and it's given me the writing mm. of the book has given me some practices to rein that in right yeah right. and also call each other on it 
Right. Yeah. Now, now that we know this stuff, it's like you're like, hey, you're <laughs> manifesting uh, <laughs> symptoms of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or just uh-huh. or the opposite. Like, I mean, this might be the the OCD tendency in me is I get so in my head. I'm calling Steve. I'm like, dude, am I tweeting too much? Like, is my passion obsessive? <laughs> like, am I getting too excited about doing this ritual podcast? And Steve's like, dude, <laughs> yeah, like, chill, chill the fuck out. out. Like, you're fine. Like, so, like you're supposed to enjoy this. There's some yeah. of that too, right? So like, yeah, we're not saying don't enjoy things. Like, enjoy things, celebrate them, but just like, you know, 51% harmonious and enjoy the success too because like, it's fleeting, but it's fun when you have it. Right. And it's amorphous uh, trying to r- kind of figure out how to think about these ideas that all bump into each other. Like, you know, the idea of balance, like what is balance? Is balance overrated? I mean, that's a conversation, you know, we had years ago, right? Right. And these are like, how does that relate to passion? And what is the value of passion? And what trumps the other, right? And the thing is, it's all this murky soup, right? And it is a spectrum and that's not a gratifying answer in, in you know a culture in which we want the very clear cut life hack and you know the simple thing that we can like hang our hat on. Yeah, we're you know our our publisher and agent probably aren't, aren't happy with us for not having that single hook. simple hook. That's What's like, the one idea no one's ever answer. thought of before? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but like that's what we're trying to deal with reality, right? And all these conversations that we've had, that Brad and I have had, like they're just things we're wrestling with. And that's why this is such an interesting thing is passion is this big blob of amorphous stuff that mixes together and there's no correct like hack to figure it out. It's just what we realized in this is that there's a lot of different ways to do it, yeah. but just kind of be aware of what you're getting into. Uh-huh. You know, if you want to go all in, great, do it. But like, be aware that you're doing it. Right. This is what's this is this is the this is what's entailed in this journey. Yeah. Yep. And if you stay in it too long, then you know this and this might happen. But if you have the self awareness to understand, like, hey, this is good. You know, this is this is how you excel. Like, you have to go all in on something that you're passionate about. That's how greatness is created totally. across every discipline, but you know you need to know when to pull out as well and recalibrate. Yeah, yep. fair enough. And I wanna know, Steve, in the researching of this book and the writing of this book, how has this impacted your coaching downstream? Like I asked you specifically about one thing earlier, but like in general, has this informed like your coaching philosophy or how you interact with your athletes? A hundred percent it has. Mm. I mean, it's made me, <laughs> you know, actually I was reading a, a, a book by Percy Sarity, who was a great coach in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And his book was all in there. He talked all about how intrinsic motivation mattered, but more than anything, he said, I'm training and coaching you to be a better person. And if you're a better person, then you will run faster. And I think with this passion thing, it's very similar. As I'm trying to now, my perspective has changed as like, the performance will take care of itself, right? As if we do these workouts and do all this stuff, like we're gonna get better on Uh that. But the greater good on this is how do we make you have a better relationship with like this activity that you're putting so much effort into? So I see my almost goal now is like, how do I cultivate this like ability for them to have a healthy or uh-huh. um, a good relationship with with running? And with themselves. Exactly. Right. Parents, if 
you're listening, send your kids to Steve. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> that, that's something where my that kid would go. You every, know? Well, also, like, coaches need to yeah. – you should, you should be coaching coaches about how to be better coaches for – for you know people's lives as opposed to performance like the workout is easy yeah. that's the easiest <laughs> part right it's all the messy psychology of like dealing with young people in their formative years exactly it's funny as a coach you get trained in the workouts and the physiology but uh -huh. you get no or little training in right. the psychology but that's what matters the most and you know the funny thing is if you look at coaches like we probably have at the high school and college level, you see your coach more often than you see anybody else. Right. So the ability to impact a kid is much greater for me than some, you know, uh, math or science professor or anybody else. And that responsibility, like, that's pretty big. Yeah. And same when you look at, you know, Brad brought up parents, but like parents have a huge impact on all this stuff. I've seen so many kids come to the collegiate level who have an unhealthy relationship with the sport because you know mom and dad like right, they're a kid it can't be their fault at that it, age yeah mom and dad put this pressure and these expectations and you know this is how this works and you better do this and it just creates this unhealthy relationship yeah. which then i have to unravel yeah how do you unravel that <laughs> That, that that's might, the mystery that, that might be a uh, yeah, hour-long conversation podcast. another podcast there yeah but it's so important you know and i think it is true there's there's no barrier to entry essentially to anybody saying they're a coach i mean obviously there's certifications yeah. and thing, you know all that kind of stuff but um the fact that the psychological aspect of it which is the gravamen of what you're doing uh is something that that is not trained at all is insane oh it's it's yeah. crazy i mean it's it's completely backwards and it's something that should <laughs> right. be should and be and slightly more removed than steve looking in there's also this perverse incentive especially in college where what is good for the kid might what is good for the kid over 20 years might not be good for the kid's performance over four years. Mm -hmm. So it's like chasing quarterly profits instead of long-term growth. Right. And it's real easy for a college coach, we talked about this in our first book, to burn the crap out of a kid. Kid runs great in college, and then the kid's first pro meet, there's nothing left in his or her legs, mm -hmm. and they're done. Or it's you know not even a pro meet. It's like you burn them for four years, and then they have a horrible relationship with the sport and never want to do it again. Never want to do it, yeah. yeah and yeah. then you have this resentment and this whole other psychology that is there. We got a lot of problems we got to solve. <laughs> Read the you book though, and yeah. practice your passion. <laughs> and right. it's a, it is a positive. Um, it's a positive book, but I think yeah, it addresses something that there's a lot of delusion around, um, and says, hey, like it's not so simple. And yet, as Steve said, there are these practices that can help you navigate the path. Yeah. It's very helpful. It's very instructive. It's easy to read, and uh, and it's laced with all of these real life examples to illustrate the points that you're making. And I found it to be very impactful. You guys did a great job with this book, so I'm super excited that it's finally going to get out there. You have you also have amazing blurbs from really cool people. Like didn't Daniel Pink give you a blurb? Yeah. And who else? Shalane Shalane Flanagan, Shalane Flanagan so we're, did. We're proud of so. that because like cool. she embodies this stuff. Yeah, of she, course, man. The perseverance and the passion over the long haul, yeah, right? You know what I mean? Um, awesome. So are you guys going to be doing any live events coming up? If people want to come out and see you speak or 
you know, get a book signed or anything like that? Yeah, we've got a whole bunch of stuff in Northern California. So um, the Thursday of launch week, which is Thursday the 21st, we're doing a big event at a cafe called Firebrand, where we'll be uh, talking about the book and signing books. And then Friday and Saturday, we'll be at the Oakland Marathon. Awesome. Uh, cool, man. Well, congrats. And uh, come back when you write another book in another nine months. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. You know what I mean? No, you know, we're working on uh, Ted. If you're listening, Ted's our agent. Where you know He thinks like a book should happen every five years. And we're like, nonsense. Like, we're going to die. So he's moved us from every nine months to every two to three years. Two to three years? Yeah, so. Well, it depends on what kind of book. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but I, there's a lot of research that goes into these books, too. So I'd imagine that's pretty time consuming. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know. We, we go all in know. for a little bit before right. we come back out. So we get it done. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, The Passion Paradox, A Guide to Going All In, Finding Success, and Discovering the Benefits of an Unbalanced Life. That's my favorite part, the benefits of an unbalanced life, because um, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And uh, you guys did a good job. Thank you so much. Uh, everybody go out and check out the book. It's an easy read. It's short, too. How many pages is it? Just well, like- yeah, it's like 100, 160, something Pretty like that. So you guys can quickly read well. it. So, yeah. all right, man. Well, much love to you guys and best of luck with everything coming up. If cool. people want to connect with you online, at B. Stolberg. And Steve, you are Steve Magnus. Correct. Keep it simple. On Twitter and Instagram and all the like. Yep. All right, man. Peace. Thank you, Rich. Plants. Good stuff. Great guys. Solid information. Super cool podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Do yourself a favor, pick up their new book, The Passion Paradox. Check out the show notes on the episode page to dig deeper into their work and their lives. And you can hit them up directly on Twitter at B Stolberg for Brad, S-T-U-L-B-E-R-G, and at Steve Magnus, M-A-G-N-E-S-S on Twitter. Steve is also on Instagram. Brad is not. You can find Steve at Steve Magnus there as well. Uh, let them know what you thought of this conversation and the new book. Uh, once again, we got a deal on our Plant Power Meal Planner through April 13th, $20 off when you use the code POWER20 at checkout. POWER20. Go to meals.richroll.com to learn more. If you would like to support our work here on the podcast, there are a couple ways to do just that. Just tell your friends about the podcast or your favorite episode. Take a screen grab, share it on social media, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you enjoy this content. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music, Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing. Jessica Miranda for graphics, Allie Rogers for portraits, photographs, DK David Kahn for advertiser relationships and theme music as always by Analemma. Thanks for the love you guys. See you back here in a couple days with a very special midweek conversation with Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square. Super excited about this one. So until then, remember there is both good passion and there is bad passion and what direction your passion takes you is largely up to you. See you soon. Peace. <laughs>